1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we wash your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, Doug Fields talks about Elon Musk's Neuralink and who discovered brainwaves. Here's news of greenwashed coal and the Prime Minister interferes with the ABC again. Clean money for dirty hydrogen. The federal government has ordered the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to give $300 million to the coal industry for converting coal into hydrogen and releasing a lot of carbon dioxide in the process. This is an order to persuade people that coal is a clean fuel. Greenwashing. Research from the Australian Conservation Foundation shows that despite water restrictions from the Australian drought, coal mining and coal fired power stations in New South Wales and Queensland use 383 billion litres of fresh water every year. That's the same amount as 5.2 million people, more than the entire population of Greater Sydney or 653 litres for every tonne of coal produced. This is two and a half times more water than was used for coal in 2010. Censorship. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, is a non-profit public radio, TV and internet broadcaster funded by the Australian Federal Government. It's independent of the government by law the Prime Minister's office ordered the ABC to change an article online about the government's Safe app, writing that it was unnecessarily alarmist about privacy concerns. And the fact that Australian private data about their social graph, everyone they've spent any time with at all, will be held on Amazon web servers under United States jurisdiction, which means the US government can access Australian private data. Every use of the word tracking had to be replaced by the word tracing to reduce fears of foreign governments and Australian police misusing the social connection information for things other than medical contact tracing. Peter Dutton, the Minister for Home Affairs, held an invitation-only tender for the data storage contracts that gave it to the American company, excluding the many Australian options. The responsibility for the COVID Safe app was then handed over to Stuart Robert, Minister for Services, which conveniently ends any opportunity to ask questions about why Amazon is getting the data. Astonishingly, the Australian government is hosting the decryption keys for the private data collected by the app on the same Amazon servers as the data itself a practice that is strongly recommended against by security experts. It's like leaving the keys to your home under the welcome mat, which you've helpfully labelled keys. Ida Buttrose, chair of the ABC, was directly appointed by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, which was directly against the charter of the ABC. Last weekend, someone, presumably the Australian Federal Government, spanned all Australians with an anonymous text message which said, Help us keep you safe and ease restrictions by downloading the COVID Safe app now. Downloading an app can't ease restrictions, because only physically distancing can keep us safe, not running an app that tells you that you're maybe infected well after the fact. The UK government have already announced that their peak spy agency, GCHQ, will have access to the private data from their version of the contact tracing app. The UK contact tracing app, unlike the Australian app, doesn't need your name, phone number, or age range, and only wants half your postcode. While the Australian data may be deleted whenever the pandemic is declared over by the government, the UK data will be kept indefinitely for research. The UK app will collect 28 days of physical contact data, as opposed to the Australian app's 21 days, which both contrast to the human contact tracing experts who ask people for just the last 14 days of contacts. The draft legislation to protect people who download the COVID Safe app has been released. The draft bill allows the contact data from everyone within Bluetooth radio range, up to 10 metres, to be stored and sent to state medical offices. There's no mention of the promised limit of 1.5 metres for 15 minutes. It's missing. The legislation is worded so that your privacy is only protected while the data is on your phone. When you test positive to COVID-19 and upload your physical contacts for the last 21 days to the government's central Amazon server, your privacy is no longer protected by the legislation, either while it's on the server, nor when it's downloaded by state health officers. In the last week, 4.5 million out of 25 million Australians have downloaded the COVID Safe contact tracing app. In that time not a single state medical officer has been able to access the data to use it for contact tracing. The UK government have already announced that their peak spy agency GCHQ will have access to the private data from their version of the contact tracing app. In the last week, four and a half million out of 22 million Australians have downloaded the Safe tracing app. In that time, not a single state medical officer has been able to access the data to use it for contact tracing. Until the state medical officers are given software, passwords, and training to access the app data and use it for contact tracing people who've been in contact with people who tested positive for COVID 19, the COVID Safe app remains just a propaganda and spying tool. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Who discovered brainwaves? R. Douglas Fields is the author of The Electric Brain, a book about brainwaves and the ability to interrogate and manipulate the brain through electrical activity. Doug is a neuroscientist whose focus of research is the cellular mechanisms of memory. I spoke to him by Skype and continued our conversation by asking Doug, what do you think of Elon Musk's Neuralink?
2: Musk and Zuckerberg are both investing in brain-computer interface technology. And I think this is fascinating and indicates the potential And it's very helpful because we have industrial power and money going into developing this technology. So I I talk about this. And on the other hand, a lot of the barriers that we are facing are biological and not so much technological. Musk's idea is that if we could get more electrodes, we could do a better job of controlling the brain and feeding information into the brain. I think it's much more achievable to take information out of the brain, but to put information back into the brain is being done. Information being transmitted from brain to brain over the internet. But the ability to do that is much more of a challenging problem. So to give an example, Elon Musk envisions having 3,000 electrodes in the brain with his new multi-electrodes that are kind of sewn into the brain. I interview many people who have these kind of devices, mostly for prosthetic limbs, and they typically use an implant called the Utah Array that has 128 electrodes on it. And that allows them, uh, people who are paralyzed, to be able to move limbs and robotic arms and that kind of thing. But Musk wants to get way beyond the limitation of 120, 126, 128. If we had uh, 3000 electrodes, just think how much more capability we would have. But the biological problems are amazing. First of all, which neuron are we gonna stimulate? You know, And mm-hmm. is that neuron in my brain doing the same thing as the same neuron in your brain? No, and we have 85 billion neurons in our brain. So that's a big problem. But even more daunting, if you just simplify and have a network of 300 neurons, not 3000, but 300 neurons, and you simplify, you're going to either have this neuron on or off. And that's simplification because neurons have a certain code. But just for make it a simple calculation, you have a network of 300 neurons on or off. How many combinations is that? Well, that's 2 to the three hundred, two to the 300, raised to the 300. And that is more than all the atoms in the known universe. That's only 300. So I, I hope that gives some kind of appreciation for what the brain does, but also the challenges that we face. So this technology is going to improve. Much of what you hear trying to commercialize it is a little bit exaggerated.
1: A lot of marketing
2: yeah a lot of marketing but there are other methods new methods coming out that are non-invasive i talk about one stentrode actually he's from oxley he's originally from australia who, who is uh, taking a cannula that that has a, a shunt like that you use for cardiac surgery where this shunt goes into the vessel and then expands to relieve a blocked artery in the heart well neurosurgeons do the same thing in the brain for strokes And I was in the operating room and and was able to watch this, the stick uh, a cannula in the femoral artery in your leg and thread it all the way up into the brain, wherever they want it.
1: That's amazing.
2: And then uh, this cannula has electrodes on the end that get implanted. So there are a lot of new methods. And these are transformative for, for spinal cord patients who cannot move, suddenly lost the ability to do anything for themselves or people who have als and can't move a muscle this sort of technology is going to is transformative and will continue to get better but there are a lot of challenges a lot of biological challenges and technological
1: challenges i was speaking to somebody late last year who was working with field fmri machines for ambulances so they're starting to get portable
2: yeah yeah everything's getting more affordable and smaller, and faster, and cheaper. That's that's always the, the trend. So what seems impossible now, you know, we have to realize that progress marches on, and these things will become more and more feasible, and our ability to understand the complex neural circuits in the brain, and that activity, and to be able to control it, will increase. We've had a nice discussion here about some of the practical applications of brain brainwaves, um, brain-computer in- interface, and, and controlling brain function with brain stimulation. That's part three of my book. <laughs> part, I have three parts to the book that actually completely different aspects and, and treatments. Part one is about the history. And here I sensed a huge mystery. Who discovered brainwaves? Why don't we know his name? And generally, people don't know his name. What do you think he discovered? And what motivated him? What did other people think about it? And this turned out to be a fascinating story in how science and and society interact. And uh, so that's part one, the history of the discovery of brainwaves. And that's a fascinating tale. Part two of the book is about, okay, so now we know brainwaves exist. Well, what are they? What are the significance? And that's what part two is. It's understanding brainwaves. And what's so fascinating about this, and it's really the reason I wrote the book, is we don't know. We talked about all the applications, and they exist. But fundamentally, what brainwaves do is very much a mystery right now. And it's divided neuroscientists into two camps. One camp thinks that brainwaves are the most sophisticated mechanism for how the brain works at, at its most complex level and that this provide new insight into how the brain functions that our previous ideas are just too simplistic to explain how the brain works and brain waves are what account for the mind the brain's capability the other camp says brain waves are nothing but noise they're like the noise of an automobile engine they argue you have electrical activity going on in the brain because neurons fire communicate with electrical impulses and so you're going to get waves of electromagnetic energy, although they correlate with different states, and we can use these correlations as we discussed in part three of the book, the applications of brainwaves, whether or not they're actually having that functional role is not known. So in part two of the book, I go through and use a, you know, eyewitness reporting and go around the world to my colleagues all around the world and just lay out, uh, let them talk about the research and let the reader describe and then part three, we, we talked about really that's nobody doubts that the practical applications of brain waves and manipulating brain waves has tremendous practical, clinical, and therapeutic value. And that's where we talk about brain computer interface. So we've kind of gone in uh, reverse from back to the front, but that's fine.
1: <laughs> All right. So I guess I should ask you to give us a bit of a taste of why don't we generally learn in school? or see on TV the name of the people who discovered the existence of brainwaves?
2: Well, it's it's interesting that that the story isn't well known. And so I I went to Jena, Germany, former East Germany, where Hans Berger, who ran a mental hospital, was the first person to record human brainwaves. And he did so in the early 1920s. So he first recorded them in 1924. He did his experiments on mental patients in his hospital, and he told no one what he was doing. And after he discovered these, he kept it a secret for five years. And he did experiments on patients and members of his family. So who was this guy? And I wanted to know more about him. And he eventually ran this mental hospital in Jena, Germany. And why did he keep it a secret? He was looking for the interaction between the brain and the mind. And he had this idea that mental energy, or there was such a thing as psychic energy. And this is different from the kinds of energy that we associate with matter, but that the two could interact. So he was trying to come up with ways to measure this kind of energy. And he did things like studies on people who had cranial defects. So they had holes in their skull, and he would study the brain swelling in response to uh, different kinds of cognitive challenges. He hooked up a thing like a manometer on them, you know, like a fluid-filled tube that would record these pulsations. And he understood by the laws of thermodynamics that you can't create energy or destroy it. So psychic energy transforming to other kinds of chemical energy and electrical energy should be associated with a temperature change. So he stuck rectal thermometers in people's brains and had them do different kinds of cognitive tasks to try and record changes in temperature. This is amazing. And then finally, when you know, electricity became, the technology developed, then he began to record electrical activity in the brain. But when he did announce it, no one cared. Everyone, all the scientists dismissed it. They thought it was useless. And I think that's fascinating about how science can progress based on history.
1: Do you think it's because of where he came from or because he didn't have enough status? I mean, wasn't electricity the exciting new technology of the day that inspired Mary Shelley's well, Frankenstein? And Yeah, but he also had it, his
2: ideas of psychic energy mixed up in mental telepathy, and that mm. kind of su- sullied uh, a little bit, although he was more critical than others about that. He Wasn't, wasn't that he very big in the day? Yeah, and he, had, he believed in mental telepathy. But the real reason that I think that his name is not known is that the history was that in World War II, with the rise of Nazism, Hans Berger committed suicide in 1941. And he did so in protest against the Nazis. That was the story. But Suzanne Zimmerman and Christoph Reddy's these people I talk about in the book, when I went to Jena, they went through the records and new records after the fall of, of the Berlin Wall and found out that that was a uh, whitewash. And it always seems suspicious to me. I mean, you know, as the Nazis were rising in power in Germany, they purged everyone in academia or industry or didn't belong or support the Nazi party. So... In fact, these records show that Hans Berger was a Nazi supporter. And in fact, he was personally involved in overseeing forced sterilizations of mental patients and undesirables. There were 400,000 Germans sterilized during this period. So I think, you know, science wasn't appreciated. And then after the war, you give a Nobel Prize to, the, to a Nazi. That was, that's a bit of a problem. But it's, it's, it's interesting because where did Berger get the idea? It turns out that he was not the first person to record brainwaves. So brainwaves were recorded in animals before they were done in humans. And those experiments were done by Adolf Beck, who was a Polish scientist in 1891. And most primitive equipment, I mean, 1891, they used uh, string galvanometers and he got everything correct, you know, it's amazing. And the history here is fascinating because Beck, again, this is interaction between science and society. Beck, working in Poland, was taken prisoner during a war. Russians took him and held him in Kiev in prison, where Beck wrote to Pavlov, the famous Russian psychologist, famous for the dog training dogs that conditioned reflex, and used his influence to finally get freed from prison. So he got freed after two years, and then he went back. And, but then in World War II, the Nazis invaded Poland. And scientists' intelligentsia were a threat, and they were rounded up. And, and Beck was also Jewish. And so as the Nazis came to take him to a concentration camp, He swallowed a cyanide pill and ended his own life rather than have it taken by the Nazis. So here we have this brainwave research going on in the most tumultuous time in world wars and tangled up with Nazism. And it's really interesting. But here's the final thing. It was even more amazing. The very first person to discover brainwaves did it in 1875. And his name was Richard Caton. Completely forgotten. None of the other scientists that I mentioned even knew of this work. Caton did his work on animals, including monkeys rabbits, in Liverpool. And he had everything. In 1875, there's no electricity running through anything in the man-made world. So how would you measure brainwaves with no electrical equipment? Well, he did it. He got everything correct. But nobody understood it. And I think that's fascinating because that's happening today. He published in big journals. He gave talks. Nobody got it. So today somebody has published some new finding in a journal that nobody understands and it could be forgotten like Caton's work was forgotten for 40 or 50 years until people begin to understand and appreciate this discovery. The problem is that during this period of science we were in a period of reductionism. We were making great strides and understanding how the brain works by looking at it through a microscope and identifying neurons and uh, cellular structure and then tracing out electrical activity in individual neurons. So this reductionist approach, of looking at different parts of the brain, different parts of the cortex who had uh, different regions, did different functions. Then you have these guys come along and say, well, I can stick two electrodes on somebody's head, whole head, and make some sense
1: out of that. Just didn't make any sense to anybody. It's amazing that people can publish, and if no one pays attention to the right person, then it can go undetected for a long time.
2: <laughs> yeah. And also at that time, part of the reason was that communication wasn't as good. So, you know, Adolf Beck didn't know anything about Caton and neither did Hans Berger. But communication is a little better today. (laughs) But still, if you don't understand the science and the science goes against dogma, then you have problems.
1: That was the second part of my interview with Doug Fields about brainwaves and his book about the electric brain. R. Douglas-Fields has also written The Other Brain, about non-neuronal cells in the brain that communicate without electricity, and Why We Snap, about the neural circuitry of sudden aggression. Listen next week for the final part of my conversation with Doug Fields about how brainwaves are generated. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally, on the National Science Foundation's Science360 Internet Radio Station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com, and check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate.